I have to admit that I feel rather sorry for Portius Festus, the governor in this case. I mean, career-wise, this was a great promotion for him. But it was somewhat like the midshipman who was called to the bridge and the captain says to him, I have some good news and I have some bad news. And he asked the question, well, what is the good news? He says, I am promoting you to be the captain of the ship. Well, what's the bad news? We're sinking. You know, and kind of was a situation that Festus found himself in because previously he was pretty much a nondescript Roman official. We find no historical records of anything he did or said prior to this moment. And it's kind of funny, the only time he is mentioned in all the historical accounts of the world is right here in this passage. If he hadn't showed up at this time, we wouldn't know he had even existed. But suddenly he finds himself as the governor of one of the wealthiest, most prosperous provinces in the empire, and yet it was also one of the most restive and disturbed. You see, after sailing for five months from Rome, that's quite a journey, he finds himself tasked with running a province that was on the verge of revolution and even collapse. As one historian wrote, he said there was a shocking breakdown of law and order with open arm his hostility towards the rival, between rival factions. It was the first foreshadowing of the fearful strife and venom of the coming rebellion, now a brief six or seven years away. Every Roman official knew what his first priority was in whatever capacity he had. It was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And the Romans were very practical. They knew that war was an expensive proposition, and so they demanded that their governors, their leaders, the people who were legates and consuls and others, maintain as much peace and stability as possible because that was essential for prosperity. So Festus's commission was simply to restore order at any cost. And so his first order of business was not to stop in Caesarea, but to get off the boat and go directly to Jerusalem to talk with the rather unhappy Jewish leadership who for over two years had been grousing to have Paul brought to them and executed so that he would stop talking. So he tempted, what Festus did, is he attempts to use all of his political skills and his instincts to find a way of compromising. He would dismiss the charges of sedition, he told Paul, if he would voluntarily return to Jerusalem and stand trial. And this had some very important benefits to Festus. I mean, first of all, he would do a favor for the Jewish leaders and therefore be on a good side. They would say nice things to the emperor about him because the reason that Felix got recalled is because they said bad things about him. But secondly, it would move the venue off of his desk so he wouldn't be responsible for whatever would happen. No one would complain to the emperor if Paul happened to be murdered on the road back to Jerusalem. Yet when Paul refuses the offer, the emperor asserts his rights, uh, excuse me, as he refuses the offer to go back to Jerusalem, instead what he does is he asserts his rights as a Roman citizen. It's interesting phrasing. We rarely note it, but it's important. He says, no one has the right. He's saying this to the governor. No one has the right to hand me over to them. Knowing that he was not going to get justice from the Jews or from Festus, so he again, he exercises his rights as a citizen of Rome and stands upon Roman law and demands 
that if he is to stand trial, it will be for the emperor. Now, some historians say one of the reasons emperors didn't last that long was that they worked themselves to death because anybody in the empire who was a citizen could appeal their case to the emperor, and the emperor was honor-bound and job-bound to hear their case. So emperors spent a lot of time listening to a lot of people complaining about a lot of things that they probably wouldn't, would have preferred not to have to deal with. But again, Festus has a problem. He can't send Paul to Rome without charges and evidences to support the charges because this is a capital crime. And there are only two things that Rome would ever execute somebody for. One was murder and the other one was insurrection or sedition. By the way, not paying your taxes was insurrection and sedition. So, you know, if you don't pay your taxes, you get your head cut off. But Paul was not guilty of either one. So what Festus does, he punts. As we read next week, what he does, he attempts to pass the case on to Herod Agrippa, who was the king of Chalcis. He was Herod the Great's grandson. And it would prove to be of very little help, but it's an interesting conversation. So next week, we'll get into talking about it. But what it did provide Paul with was yet another opportunity to fulfill the very commission that God had given him to preach Christ to kings and Gentiles. As we read, it's easy to see what should have been done if the issue had been simply a question of what is right or wrong, what is true or false, what is good or evil. In other words, there are issues, if it dealt with an issue of justice, it would have been easy to dispose of the whole thing because Paul had repeatedly asserted that he was innocent of these charges. As I said, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. In fact, three different courts had previously declared that he was innocent, beginning with the arresting officer, Lysias. He said there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment, and yet here he was in prison being tried for death. Following that, he was brought before the Sanhedrin, and we read about how the Pharisees argued vigorously on Paul's behalf, and they said, we find nothing wrong with this man. And now before Festus, he himself admits to King Agrippa, I have found nothing deserving death. Yet despite the lack of a case, he ends up making one up just so he can kick that can down the road. Obviously, doing the right thing was not the motivation. So what was the motivation? Well, each of these courts and these individuals had their own motivations. Uh, For Lysias, he was trying to cover his tail because he had violated Paul's civil rights. He had arrested him when he hadn't done anything wrong. He had put him in chains before even finding anything that he was guilty of. All of this was forbidden under Roman law, and Roman law required that if he did this as an official, he in turn would have the same thing done to him. So he wants to make it sound like, I rescued Paul, and in a sense he did, but not for any kind of altruistic motive. Then there's Felix, who saw it as an opportunity to simply make money and to humiliate the Jews just to remind them who was in charge, that he was the one who would make the decisions. And then we come to Festus, the consummate politician. He needed to pacify the problem by getting Paul out of the country. You see, on the surface, it appears that each of these had their own different agenda and reasons for how they were handling Paul. 
But if we dig a little bit deeper, we go below the secret surface. If we look under the hood, if you will, we find that all three were motivated by the same kind of human passion that most people are motivated by most of the time. You see, since the very first images were scratched on cave walls or the first hen scratchers were impressed in clay in forms of early writing, more often than not, men have been motivated by selfish ambition, far more often than moral courage. Now, selfish ambition is an interesting phrase in the New Testament. The word aretheia literally means a desire to put oneself forward. It's a self-promotion. We might call it today the effort to build your own brand. You need to get your brand out there so people will give you recognition and frequent your website. It's being chiefly concerned with your own personal profit or pleasure, but it's also coupled with a lack of consideration for others. So essentially, selfish ambition is the antithesis of what the Bible says you and I should be focused upon. It's the idea of doing things not based upon what's right or wrong, not based upon what pleases God, but whether it's politically or personally expedient. Will it preserve me or will it advance me or will it hinder my ambitions and keep me from getting where I want to be? I mean, such decisions are never based upon truth or right or good, but rather the primary concern of selfish ambition is how a decision or event is going to impact my image, my power, my future, my prosperity, my stuff. Selfish ambition, from a historical point of view, has destroyed kings and kingdoms, churches, careers, family and friends, preachers, prophets, and everyday people. And if you walk through that door of selfish ambition for too long, some very bad things will begin to happen. In fact, James in James 3.16, uh, I'm quoting from the Amplified Version, but he says the following about selfish ambition. He says, wherever there is selfish ambition, there will be confusion. And then in parentheses, they add definitively unrest, disharmony, rebellion, and then it adds and all sorts of evil and vile practices. Now, I don't mean to imply that Paul had no ambitions or that Christians should have no ambitions. I mean, in a sense, in the broader sense, being ambitious means that you want to see something happen. You want to accomplish something. You want to make a difference. So when the psalmist says, unless the Lord builds a house, he who builds it does so in vain, it's not the building of the house's problem is the problem, but rather what is really motivating and guiding and directing you in building that house. He says, unless the Lord watches over a city, those who watch it do so in vain. So again, there's nothing wrong with the kinetic activity of building a house or the energetic activity of watching sentry over a city. The idea that somehow the house will build itself or we don't need to guard the gates is not something that the Bible teaches, but what it says is that God has us do everyday things empowered and purposed and coordinated with what he wants to accomplish in the world. And for some reason, that is a concept that escapes a lot of Christians. I would say it even becomes kind of a lethargic false 
doctrine in the church where what we do is we just kind of sit back and see what happens. Maybe we might toss up a prayer now and then. And now I know there's an imbalance that often comes to us. I, I think many times, even within our own congregation, there are many of you who have your uh, gun safes packed full with ammo and weapons, but your prayer closet is basically empty. And that imbalance is not a healthy dynamic, you know. I don't have any problem with a gun safe, otherwise I'd have to get rid of mine. But the whole point is, the gun isn't going to keep me safe if God isn't watching over me. And that's what the psalmist begins to say. If God isn't guarding the city, then there's no use in what we're doing. And so we find ourselves in this kind of strange polarity. When we talk about uh, evangelism and politics, we, we have these debates. Well, it's all evangelism, no politics. And then there's another group that says it's all politics, it's no evangelism. Can I suggest that both are extremes and should be avoided? That the truth so often as a case lies someplace in the middle? Paul had ambitions, but the difference was that his ambition was for God's will to be done in his life. And I would say that that becomes ultimately the right ambition. When he said to the Romans, my ambition has been to preach the gospel. (laughs) That becomes very clear because every time we see Paul, what is Paul doing? He's preaching the gospel. Even when he's on trial for his life, what does he do after he gives a defense and argues all the points and he ends up saying, But you know, King Felix, or Governor Felix, if you don't repent, you're going to hell. He's very subtle in how he does this. Almost as subtle as I am. To the Philippians in chapter 2, he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition. And then he continues later on in chapter 3, verse 12, by saying, but instead press on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of you. Forget what is behind and strain towards what is ahead. Press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I have made it my ambition to make Christ known to the world. So that was the overriding impetus of Paul. That was his vision. That was his goal. That, I believe, is supposed to be your personal goal. I think it's supposed to be our corporate goal. I think it's really the commission and the church to make Christ known into the world. But the thing we have to realize is that God is present in every aspect of our world and not just some very narrowly defined lane. That's why Paul refused to waver or compromise. I mean, you think about it. He could have paid the tribute or the bribe to Felix and simply walked out of the palace, got on the next ship going anywhere, and left all the danger and all the chaos and all the threats behind, and it would have been done. That's all he had to do. But he would not do that for a simple reason. Paul was not a man on the make. Paul was a man on a mission. And he was very clear on what that mission is. And I would suggest that many Christians get confused and sometimes misguided because they're not clear in their own minds what the mission is. They're not completely persuaded in their own understanding of what is the goal of the high calling. And so we find ourselves split into all sorts of different things. And it's not the kind of idea that I have my secular life and then I have my religious life or my spiritual life or my Christian life. 
In fact, I remember one time I was kind of shocked years ago when we were uh, praying before a, a, a worship service and one of the gentlemen who was part of one of the musicians said, Lord, we've lived all day, all week for ourselves. Today we give Sunday morning to you. And I went, whoa, <laughs> what? Well, I began to discover lots of things. He didn't believe the Bible's God's word and a whole bunch of stuff. You know, so we, he was a very good musician though, so that's all that counts. <clears throat> But the whole thing, I just really realized, I said, do you understand that God wants every moment of every day of your life? It's not that you can't do what you do to make a living, but when you do it, you do it with a different motivation. As Paul would say to the Colossians, whatsoever you do, do it for the glory of God. So, I mean, I hate to make you stress over this, but, you know, I, I decided that one day that when I cut the grass, I'm going to try to do it in a way that honors God. Which means it's a mindless job that I have to bring my thoughts into captivity of Christ and not just let my brain go anywhere I want. But I find myself oftentimes spending a lot of time pushing the mower and repenting, not for the way I'm mowing, <laughs> but because of the things that I'm grousing about in my own head. And that may seem kind of obsessive and extreme until you begin to realize that your thoughts create pathways that lead to words and actions and expressions. And so that when we begin to give place to certain things and give ourselves permission to go certain places in our own head, it can't produce good fruit. You know, it's kind of like if you're planting a garden and you go and get a bunch of seeds from the weeds in the outside your garden and you throw them in with the healthy seeds and then you wonder why is all this ugly stuff grown up in the midst of my squash? And why is my squash such wimpy squash when it's being choked off by all of this other stuff that's growing around it. And the answer is always the same because we give place in our thoughts to things that we shouldn't give place to. We think unhealthy things. We think things that are contrary to the will of God. Because Paul was a man who was focused and concentrated on the goal of the high calling that he had in Christ, a goal that he said belongs to all of us if we call ourselves followers of Jesus. He became an incredible threat to the Jewish leadership. Their objection to Paul was real simple. He wouldn't shut up. He wouldn't stop preaching. He wouldn't stop speaking the truth and it all could have been avoided, all this conflict, if he would have just really kind of added circumcision to the cross. Now, that might sound strange to us. But you see, their objection was that Paul was saying to the Gentiles who were coming to Christ, you don't have to be circumcised to get to heaven. Christ paid the price when he died on the cross that the sin that you were trying to illustrate by circumcision has now been removed by the cross. So that's why he said, I preach Christ and his cross alone, and that became the objection. Because the big argument was if Paul would just take those Gentiles and make them into good Jews, then they could continue to be Christians. We didn't care about that, but they had to become Jews first. And you're telling them that what we're saying isn't true, that it's actually contrary, that we are worshiping shadows instead of worshiping the reality. You see, there were, though, well-intentioned people in Paul's life who would counsel him to kind of 
tone it down. I mean, he tells us that. Just stop saying that circumcision can't save. Don't let that be an issue. And if you've read any Paul's letters, you find out it's a big issue that he keeps on coming back to again and again and again because everywhere he was going, there were people who were following him and saying, well, what Paul has given you is, is okay. I mean, it's a good starter. You know, he, Paul's really good with the elementary things of knowing God, but there's more for you. Don't you want it all? You can also, I mean, this is the thrill. Not only do you get Jesus, not only do you get the Holy Spirit, but you also get circumcision and you also get a kosher diet and you also have to start keeping these other rituals and you got to do this and you got to do that and they start lading all 613 of the commandments in the old testament saying and when you do all of those things without fail for the rest of your life then you've got an inside chance of actually getting to heaven but no guarantees here it's not surprising that gentiles weren't particularly attracted to that message and yet Paul found when there were sincere Christians who were seeking to honor God, and we get to that place when we come to him early in our walk where we want to really, we really want to live our Christian life. We start looking around saying, what are the things that make me an evidence that I am truly a follower of Jesus? And we look up and we see somebody has a Bible and, and they've got their name etched on it. It isn't just an ordinary Bible. It's got a leather cover. It costs serious money. You can't get it at Costco. You've got to go online to find them now. Sometimes you have to kill your own cow. And you start going through all of these things to say, yeah, I, how do Christians dress? How do Christians talk? What do they look like? And, you know, many of you don't realize, only flannel. That's it. <laughs> God doesn't hear you if you're not wearing flannel. <laughs> I mean, I'm being ridiculous, obviously, being ludicrous over the top, but I think we need to understand how easily this kind of creeps into our minds. And it's such a striking moment when you realize that God says, I do not look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. This came to me really early in my Christian life. I mean, I, uh, when I went on staff at Calvary and Costa Mesa back then, it was the first time I'd lived someplace where people had money. I mean, when kids would come to the Christian school being chauffeured in their limousines, I realized this is a different neighborhood. <laughs> uh, and one day I see Chuck Missler. The time he was president of Western Digital, he pulled up in his red Testarossa, popped up those gull wings and climbed out with his $1,000 suit and walked in to talk to the pastor and and I thought to myself, how can he call himself a Christian and drive a car like that? I don't claim to hear from God a lot, at least audibly, but I remember that was one of those occasions where I, I could swear he was standing right next to me. And the only thing he said was, I never noticed. What do you mean? <laughs> Testarossa, it's red. Golf wings. Huh. What do you mean you never know it's God? What do you mean? I... And I suddenly realized the moment is God doesn't look at that stuff because it's inconsequential. You're not taking it with you anyway. Although that would make a really cool casket. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> but I wouldn't be enjoying it. No, what really matters is what God looks at your heart and what does he know to be true there. And it, that's, all you, that's what you need to take care of because that's where the trouble begins and that's also where the good stuff begins. 
Every, even the Jerusalem elders were encouraging Paul to do something that he was probably uncomfortable with. Remember when they said back in chapter 21, uh, take these men and join in their purification rites and pay their expenses and have their heads shaved. And then everybody will know that there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. In other words, do these things so you don't stand out and you don't make, draw attention to yourself and you just kind of slide by. How did that work out? <laughs> not only did that plan not work, it ended up exactly as they had feared. Their efforts to avoid conflict was actually not what God wanted. The riots and the attacks against Christians followed after this even more intensely. And it wasn't too much longer after this that James, the elder, who was leading this kind of advice and trying to tell Christians, keep your heads down, was beaten to death by a club, by an angry mob, because he wouldn't renounce Christianity. You see, all Powell had to do to defuse the situation was go along with the popular narrative. Or at the very least, to be silent. To stop talking about Jesus. Stop teaching. Stop challenging. Stop promoting things that are true. You know, few Christians today realize that the church has almost always been at odds with the secular culture within which it lives. The American experience is a unique experience in the history of the world. That the American experience is that we had a country that was founded on biblical principles. And basically those principles guaranteed everyone the right to worship God as they want, to be able to say what they want, to pretty much live the way they want as long as it isn't in violation of the welfare and well-being of others around us. But one of the things we find is in every other culture in history, and this is the problem we have, we don't have perspective. We live in our culture, we think this is the way it is and the way it will always be, but in most of the world, even today, it's not that way. If you live in Saudi Arabia and you're a Christian, you can't worship openly. If you live in India and you lead somebody to Christ, you can't baptize them or else you'll go to jail. It's that way in much of the world. Most of the world still operates that if you li actively live out your faith, you will suffer as a consequence of it. We find that the biblical narrative always undermines and is counter to the cultural narrative where it is born. And it's amazing because Christianity is growing the fastest in the world today where the biblical narrative is the most strongly opposed. So that today, when we look at China, we realize that there are probably at least 100 million Christians, if not more, that the government now has increasingly made illegal, because not because they hate Christianity as such, they just oppose anything that doesn't follow along the words with, of the CCPM, or the Communist Chinese, Chinese Communist Party. Communism is the God, the state is the God, you worship the state, you don't worship anything else, and so if you worship something else, you'll suffer for it. It's the reason they're persecuting the Uyghurs and, and, and so many other groups, Falun Gong and all these different groups that don't submit to the Chinese government are finding themselves being ostracized and even uh, arrested, imprisoned, and put in concentration camps and even being executed because they won't compromise their faith. When the church has said we will not hang a picture 
of Xi Jinping, the president of the country, on the wall instead of a picture of Christ. When we will not allow the state to insert television cameras so they can audit who comes and goes and what's taking place within our services. And suddenly, Christianity has come under a tremendous ban in that country. And we, we kind of never really get it covered here because the powers that be in this country are so deeply embedded and invested in Chinese industry and Chinese economy. And, and uh, when your leaders are taking direct bribes from them, it's pretty hard for them to speak out and say, it should be doing that. But the same thing is happening in India, where we find that 300 million of their 1.2 billion population were people who were born literally on the wrong side of the genetic tracks. They're called Dalits, and Dalits is just another way of saying untouchables. They're literally slaves. They have to be Hindus, but they can never worship at a Hindu temple because they're too unclean. And so if a Brahmin, the top caste, kills a Dalit, there's no consequences. And so what happened is these Dalits, by the millions, started converting to Christianity. Because if they were Christians, they no longer had to submit to the caste system. And so now there's a law to give civil rights, equal rights to the Dalits, even though it's in their constitution and the caste system has been outlawed. It's alive and well, even in this country. It's still practiced amongst many Hindus. And as a consequence, they're now being stalled because they don't want to give them equal rights. There are so many of these kind of dynamics that exist around the world that affect most of the world's population that we have been really spared from. We've never had to deal with that. And yet we're coming into an era and it's come upon us very quickly and it's going to become more intense as time goes on where we're going to find that we in fact are going to be probably a persecuted minority. And are you prepared spiritually to stand for Christ when that happens? See, that's, that's the kind of real-life, ground-level, rubber-tire-meets-the-road rubber, type of reality that sometimes we just never think about. We're more concerned about <clears throat> the latest movie or the latest music or the latest convenience or how much food's costing me or how much gas costs, and all those things are issues. But we don't realize that what happens oftentimes in a culture is the first thing they do is they start criticizing you. They start making fun of you. You become puns, jokes, you're, you're ridiculed. And then once they've been able to establish that and there's nobody censoring or pushing back on that, the next thing they do is they begin to marginalize you. You aren't relevant. It doesn't matter. And once they've marginalized you, then they can begin to vilify you. You're not just odd, you're bad. You're really bad. And then finally, when they've vilified you, then they can ostracize you. They can get rid of you. You're done, out of the way. And the tragedy is that most of us live in a country where we say, well, that would never happen. Hmm. You see, the reason the elites in any country always try to silence the opposition is because the elite's grip on the population is actually rather fragile. 
You see, in the past, and even in the present to some degree, what they rely upon is shaming and shunning, and if that doesn't work, they imprison, and they exile, or they execute to stop people from speaking out. So totalitarianism has to silence opposition. There's a Belgium scholar by the name of uh, Mattis Desmet who wrote a phenomenal book called The Psychology of Totalitarianism. He made it... It's interesting because he has a doctorate in psychology and he also has a graduate degree in statistics. And where he first began to stir things up was when he began to look at academic papers that were being published in universities around the world. And he said that 85% of them were seriously flawed, if not fraudulent, in their data. So he says the academics who are creating the information that governments are making their decisions on is filled with information that's actually not true. And he said, surprisingly, most of his colleagues were not happy with him. But he could prove the point. But he said most of them didn't want to see it because it would disrupt the status quo, which they were benefiting directly from. And then he said COVID came out, and I started looking at the work by the Imperial College in England and their predictions. He said, for example, you've got a country like Sweden that they said, Sweden, based on the population, when COVID strikes, 60,000 Swedes are going to die from COVID. He said, in the aftermath, we know that 6,000 died. You know, that's only a little bit of an error. Off by 10, point, 10, 10, 10 times. But the whole thing that's really interesting, he says, is I just looked at the statistics very early on and said, this makes no sense whatsoever. And he says, I began to realize that this is how people are controlled. We're told things that are palpably untrue. But I think the thing was most important, I think, what he said. He said that as long as 5% of the community is willing to speak out, totalitarian can never fully establish itself. Because he said only 30% are the true believers. <laughs> and he explains the psychology of how people become true believers in something that's fantasy you know, like wearing masks or any of the rest of that kind of stuff. People become true believers. I thought it was interesting when the CDC was deciding that they were going to require, uh, make it part of the uh, mandatory in, um, uh, vaccination schedule that now kids going into kindergarten and on up will have to also have COVID-19 shots to, uh, as part of their regimen. And I was looking at the video screen of all the different members of that panel who were making that decision and... Several of them were wearing masks on a Zoom call. <laughs> and you've got to realize this is not about worrying that somehow, you know, a Norton virus is going to come through your computer. <laughs> this is about virtue signaling. I don't wear it because it's going to keep me safe. I wear it because it says that I am morally superior to you. I'm, I'm more virtuous. Long, 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 long after the evidence, well, it was in 1918 after swine flu, they recognized that wearing masks was not going to protect anybody from a virus. But he said, you know, what happens, he says, you only have 30% who buy into it because it gives them a certain meaning, a purpose in life. They become the crusaders. They become the heroes. He said, the other 65% of the population just sit back and keep their heads down. They don't want to get caught up. They don't want to get in trouble. They just want to go along. They figure, well, this will pass, and we'll just endure this until it's over. It's like many of us, even here, we thought, well, when finally COVID is done, then we can get back to normal. Has that happened? No. 
because it's not supposed to. But he went to point out, he said, but if there's a 5% of that population just simply says, show me the Carfax. <laughs> That's all it takes, a 5%. 5% like Bodicera and Malone and scores of other epidemiologists who are of renown, if they just stand up and say, wait a minute, this is all the wrong approach to this, this epidemic. It's not a pandemic, it's an epidemic. And it's all just exaggerated. It's not as bad as we hit. And even now Pfizer has come out <laughs> and admitted that they never claimed the shot would prevent you from getting COVID. It's going, I am taking crazy pills. <laughs> because Joe told me that if I got it, I would not get COVID. Now that he's had it six times. You know, the adage is so overwhelmed that, you know, the emperor has no clothing. I mean, scary. The emperor, the emperor not only doesn't have any clothing, he doesn't have any skin. <laughs> it's, he's become skeletal. And yet people are still afraid to say the obvious. Because what Dismet went on to point out, he says, but what happens is when that 5% decide to go silent, as they did in Germany, before the Nazis took full control, as they did in Russia, as they did in Cuba, as they did in Venezuela, and any other totality and country on the earth, in Iran, when they decided not to speak up, then they could crush all opposition. And right now, people are rioting in the streets of Iran. They've had too much, but we're making our best effort to buy oil from them so we can keep them afloat. See, today those behind this rising, what's literally termed a, a technocratic, transhumanist totalitarianism. What does that mean? Technocratic means that you have kind of a, a faceless bunch of scientific, technological people who are kind of making all decisions and, and running the show. I know that we have a placeholder in the White House, but it's, he's not anybody's actually running anything, obviously. He can't get off the stage. He's not running anything. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. It's just a fact. I can't believe anybody thinks that's strange. You, you hear the defense of these things and you go, What's, who, who can defend this? But there are powers behind there that are making all these decisions and, and changing the culture dramatically and violating our civil rights as Paul was having his civil rights violated. It's being done all over the place. And it's, the idea is transhumanist. Transhumanist doesn't mean that you become a machine, but it does mean that machines begin to take over the role of humans with the eventual goal that we will become one with machines and then we, become, we can become God on earth. But the basic idea is that suddenly it becomes digitally controlled. And most people, again, have no idea how far down that road we are. becomes a totalitarianism because the totalitarian believes they're driven by ideology, not by power, not by money. They're driven by ideology. They believe that if you give them the power and the control over everyone, they can make earth into heaven. They don't believe in climate change. They don't believe that fossil fuels are bad. They don't believe any of the things that they sell. Those are all just the arguments they use 
to scare you into letting them do what they want to do. Everybody knows that electric cars aren't the answer, and yet state after state saying we're going to require the end of fossil fuel-powered vehicles, which I think is maybe a good suggestion you buy a bike. But basically, this consortium of big tech, the World Economic Forum, the UN, the global finance institutions, and the progressives have have less need to use such draconian messages in our day. Not only can they shadow ban us or cancel us because we do not conform to their narrative, but very soon they will have total control of your money. I just wonder how many of us know that President Biden issued an executive order instructing the Treasury Department and the banks to begin to transform all currency from a fiat currency like bills into digital tokens. And this is happening in 120 countries around the world from the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, right on down to the local bank on your corner that one day you're going to find out that you don't have money in the bank, you have tokens and they are trackable tokens so every purchase you make is recorded and tracked. So you can no longer go get some money and go down and buy what you want. Your wife's going to know you've been buying big hunk candy bars and that you're not gaining weight because you have a thyroid condition, <laughs> but you're gaining weight because you're a sugar and chocolate addict. May we all uh, live long. And you know, I know it's going to happen. 95% of people will just go, okay, I guess this is good as long as I can continue to get my money. Well, that's up for them to decide because it also has built in it the power to take your money away, freeze it, do whatever they want with your funds. Kind of like they did in Canada, right? Yet many Christians and churches are, don't need to be censored, they've self-censored. <laughs> they tell the church, you know, what we need to do is stay in our lane and leave the politics and those things to the politicians. And that's music to the politicians' ears. <laughs> that's music to the elite's ears. It's just what they did in Germany. It's what happened all over Eastern Europe. Churches self-censored. The churches in Germany said, we should not get involved in the politics. And so they just sat by quietly while their neighbors were being arrested and carted off to concentration camps. And eventually... Even the Jews were carried away. And they loved to pretend that they didn't know. And the evidence is now coming out. They knew. But they were terrified to go against the system. Because they knew that if they did, they would come and take them away. And so fascism and communism exploded. It's interesting. Hannah Arendt who wrote in 1951 in her book, Totalitarianism, the first to really do an in-depth study on how totalitarian governments develop. She wrote in there, she said, totalitarianism began first with the communists and then it was followed by the fascists. But he, she said, the next totalitarian movement is going to be technology. Technological totalitarianism. Where everything you do is controlled someplace else. 
I would just encourage you to take a few moments even today and sit back and say, how many things that go on in my life are based upon access to technology? I'm not going to try to hide when they come for me because my face has been, been mapped all over the world. <laughs> when I go to the airport, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't even go through the TSA. I go through clear, and I go through clear, and they, I put my face, I look in there, and they read my eyes, and they say, okay, you go through, and they walk me right through the airport. They don't, when I come into the country, I, I use my mobile app. I just put in there where I'm coming from, and as I'm on the plane, I, put, I just put all the information in there, and then I just go up to this one little one monitor that sits there, and I just put my phone underneath it and go, and I don't go through passport control. I don't do it through customs. I just walk right out, grab my bags, and get on the plane. I love it. And one day, it'll say, do not allow. <laughs> it'll be a big red X. Like frightened mice, Christians have unfortunately often laid low, hiding quietly and not making any biblical noises that would challenge the narrative. The question I really have, should we be silent when a government violates its own laws that it's sworn to uphold? And when it protects and empowers corrupt leaders who illegally and against all scientific facts, can lock down a society, shut down businesses, shut down churches, shut down schools and communities, who can force us to wear masks that they know don't work, can fire employees who don't get injected, refuse to educate our children if they won't get the jab, a jab that they don't need, that doesn't work, and probably does harm to turn a blind eye to the flood of deadly drugs that are killing over 100,000 of our young people every year as our borders are being flooded by 2 million illegal aliens every year who nobody knows. Who wants to make it the law of the land that they can continue killing unborn children up until and even after the moment of birth while releasing convicted killers without bail, who arrest those who protest abortion or protest transmutilations or protest pedophilia and the grooming in our schools. And I ask you, is that what it means in the Bible to love your neighbors? Do we love our neighbors by ignoring these sins and the evils that they produce? Is that preaching the gospel by saying, well, I don't want to make somebody feel bad? Are we being a witness when we're silent? No, I think we're becoming like Lot, who, granted, it says he was vexed daily with the wicked conversation or behavior of the Sodomites, but he never said anything. <laughs> he, he never said anything. He, he neither moved out or took a stand, and he ended up losing everything, including his own children. see, Christ gave us a simple command. In Matthew 28, verse 29, he says, make disciples. Not donors, not do-gooders, not church attenders. Make disciples. And a disciple is somebody who is disciplined in the ways of his master. And the problem is, if you look at how Jesus followed the Father, we realize that it led to his crucifixion. 
And so what we want to do is find a way to follow the Father, but not quite so close. (laughs) We want to be like the apostles, to hide in the upper room or sneak around behind and follow from a distance and see what's going on. But don't make me stand up for Christ, stand up for the gospel. We're supposed to baptize them, which means fully immersing them in water, but really the idea is you're being fully immersed in Christianity, that you're being fully immersed in what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not just putting your toes in the water and getting them a little wet. You're becoming fully immersed. I was on the beach in Florida a few months ago. God bless it. Uh, <laughs> I'm struggling. This cold weather. <laughs> but as I was sitting there, and I, I'm walking up to the beach, and my grandkids are putting a foot in and jumping out. Oh, it's cold. And they're going back and forth. They said, here's how you do it. And I just dove in and came up, and it only hurt for a second. You see, when you try to inch your way in little by little to make it easy and, not, and to avoid as much discomfort as you possibly can, you'll never become fully immersed. You need to dive in. You need to get serious about this thing. You know, I mean to say, this is, this is going to be the thing that informs the way I do my job, the way I forms how I, I relate to people in my life. This is going to inform how I vote how I think about things. It's going to inform my conversation with people, even when they're adversaries. It's going to inform how I have those conversations. Because Jesus said we need to, and this is the part that gets skipped a lot, teaching them to obey everything Christ commanded. Now, you can't teach people anything by being silent. Two of my grandkids are in a Christian school back in Tennessee, and Their mom came up with a great idea. They FaceTime me on Fridays for about 20 minutes, and I'm teaching them the Bible. She said, you're probably equipped to do that. (laughs) And so (laughs) I'm explaining to them, we're going through the book of Genesis right now. Now, why is it? I explained it to them. I said, why is this book so important? And they go, well, uh, uh, because it's in the Bible. You know, they have all those kind of answers. And I said, when you build a house, what do you build first? The foundation. The older one got it right away. And I said, yeah. And if you don't, you build a house without a foundation, what happens? It collapses. We're living in a culture that the foundation has been stripped out of most people's lives. And they're wondering why their lives are collapsing. We need to lay the foundation. But that means communication. Silence is not an option. In Romans 10, Paul said, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe on the one whom they have not heard? And how can they heard without someone preaching to them? Can we preach salvation without speaking about sin and judgment to come? Is that really the gospel? Give your life to Jesus and you'll know your best life now. Is that the gospel? Or is that a part of it? You see, the gospel means that we all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But those who believe on Christ Jesus will have their sins forgiven and will receive the gift of eternal life. And those simple statements are loaded with all sorts of details and facts and information and concepts. But if you don't lay that foundation that you're a sinner, 
that, and you're a sinner not only by birth and by nature, but by things that you do, the way you live your life. That proves that you're a sinner. It doesn't make you a sinner, but it certainly proves that you are a sinner. When you lie, you cheat, you steal, you commit sexual immorality, you do all these kind of things that people do before they know the Lord. And then you come to Christ and you have to be willing to say, God, that is sin. I confess it is sin. Forgive me for my sin. That's why there is no gospel without reference to sin and judgment because there is a consequence, is there not? Because Paul said to the Corinthians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That's a sobering statement. Paul, who was the preacher of God's grace, said you have to understand that one day you will stand before the presence of the God of the universe and there will be accountability for your life. Now, I'm pretty excited about that moment because once I get past the sting of having dove into the waters of death, And he asked me, why are you here? And I say, not because of works of righteousness that I've done. I'm here because I have believed on your son, Jesus Christ. And he will look at me in that moment and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And I'll say, you said faithful? Did you forget about this part? He said, yep. (laughs) It's all under the blood. It's all gone. All I see is the good that you did. We must stand up, we must pray up, we must speak up, and we need to vote out of office those who are perpetuating this craziness that's overcoming this culture. And if you don't, you have only yourself to blame for what's going to come. I love Paul's comment to Festus. No one has the right. It doesn't mean that they will do what's right. But I have to be very clear. There's some things that people do that they don't have a right. They don't have a right to tell people to do some of the things that they are telling us to do. They don't have a right. But I also believe that when 5% of the population stands up and said, we're not going to do this, we're not going to believe lies, we're not going to close our eyes to what's going on, then I think what happens is eventually the totalitarians will fall on their own crumbly road. Their foundation will collapse. 